0: Few of you might know this, but my wardrobe is packed with shoes. In fact, it's not just my wardrobe. My hallway, living room, kitchen, and bathroom are literally teeming with trainers. You name it, I probably own it. So can you imagine how excited I was during lockdown that I could still get my trainer fix and the shopping experience I love without leaving the house? That's thanks to the power of augmented reality on Snapchat. With Snap AR, businesses can transform how they connect with customers like you and me and the results they deliver. And did you know that more than 200 million Snapchatters use AR every day on average? So if you're in the shoe business or any other business for that matter and want to connect with an engaged audience, you need to visit forbusiness.snapchat.com/oys and tap into the power of Snap AR today. Hello, I'm Arvin Hickman, and welcome to The Campaign Podcast. After nearly two years of COVID lockdown, the media industry has finally come together in one room to celebrate the Media Week Awards. It was Campaign's first live event for a long time, and today we'll take a look at some of the winners from the evening and how the event transpired. We'll also review ads from Barclaycard, Burberry, Channel 4, and the government, and whether Adland should look outside of London to plug an alarming talent shortage. And a bit later on, a panel of experts will discuss whether creative skills are compromised when taking marketing in-house. To discuss this and much more, I'm joined by Campaign's Work and Inspiration editor, Imogen Watson. Imogen, this was our first Campaign Awards event and the first for the industry in nearly two years. How did you find it?
1: felt very triumphant um, and a lot of the discussion over the last... 18, 19, I've forgotten how many months, has been all about, you know, virtuals here, it's the end of live events, and and it kind of felt a bit sad at the time, because we've all enjoyed live events, we love networking, we love getting together, and it was a, show, a sign that we do need these big events, um, and there's nothing better than having all these competing agencies all in one room, um, you know, who has which table has the loudest cheer, it was certainly the ones around me, um, couldn't hear myself think. Um, But it was good to sort of... It felt triumphant because we'd overcome everything.
0: Yeah, it certainly did. And and we'll touch on the vibe a bit later on. Uh, Just to let our listeners know, some of the big winners on the night included MGOMD. Which picked up a bang of awards, including Media Agency of the Year. Um, its StableMake PhD also won a bunch, including the Grand Prix Award. ITV won several, and Rob Pierre from Jellyfish won Media Leader of the Year. Uh, Channel 4 won Sales Team of the Year, Lad Bible won the Media Brand, and a special congrats to our rising stars, Cassandra McDonald from Vivo and Andy. Ankara from Merkel. Uh, check out our website for the full list of winners. Now, Imogen, it was really cool because I got to sit next to Jenny Bigham from The Seven Stars and Natalie Bell from MGOMD. And, you know, it was quite interesting as the night transpired, she kept collecting all of this silverware. And, you know, it was just really nice and sweet to see her celebrating, getting more and more excited as the evening went on. How did you feel the general vibe was like when, where you were sitting and, and, and on the dance floor, more importantly?
1: <laughs> um, I'll get to that um but as i've said it was triumphant but to be honest a lot of people that i talked to were originally a bit nervous or admitted to me to be honest afterwards that they were nervous because you know we've all been in lockdown or we've been working from home and we're only just about going back to the office so it was the first time that people were in a big group of straight not strangers but people you know some are strangers some people they know it was a bit overwhelming for some but i think by the first starter <laughs> and a couple of glasses of champagne things sort of you know, got a bit more normal. And I think the people who might have been hesitant about going were glad that they'd gone. A few people admitted to me that they were nervous. Um But yeah, it's by the point it got to the dance floor, then yeah, all of those had been shattered. Um And it was, as I say.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because it kind of definitely warmed up as the evening progressed. Uh, I think initially there was a bit of hesitancy, as you said, people not sure whether they should take hands, hug it up, that sort of thing, do the fist bump. The awkward elbow. (laughs) Do the elbow. That's right. I mean, it was really interesting to see how people sort of rediscovered how to socialise again, because, you know, we've all been locked away in in our houses such a long period of time. And, you know, maybe it doesn't come as naturally back to people.
1: There was a period where I was practising on like people in the cafe. (laughs) Oh, really? Just like, practicing conversation coming out of lockdown with just like when people in the cafe ask you how your day is and it felt like you were learning again.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it certainly felt like that. And, and on that note, actually, Campaign's big awards are sort of less than a month away now, aren't they? I think it's, is it November the 18th? It's around then. Um, so yeah, Adland, make sure you keep your tuxedos and your glad rags at the ready for us to do it all again. Now, Imogen, when I was at the event, I had a discussion with an agency boss about one of the biggest issues facing Adland and that is talent churn. Now, I've heard figures from the the industry averages around 35% churn at the moment. Uh, Usually, it's closer to 25%. Uh, Now, there are a lot of reasons uh, why churn is so high. Uh, Talent leaving the industry altogether after a very challenging lockdown period where there was a lot of burnout. You know, you've got other um, businesses outside of the industry, tech firms, for example, hiring the best and brightest and so on. But what is the solution to rebuilding teams? Well, Imogen, one agency believes it involves ad land looking for talent outside of the M25. Um, Our colleague Shauna wrote a great piece about what one agency, VCCP, is doing. Can you give us a bit of a rundown?
1: Yeah, so Stoke was once a jewel in our industrial history, uh, but in recent years it's laying off the beaten track. But VCCP is bringing it back into focus uh, with an academy scheme that will do exactly that. Um, And, you know, outside of London, Leeds and Manchester are generally the go-to hubs um, and Stoke is frequently ignored. So through the apprenticeship scheme, they plan to create over 500 opportunities over the next year by connecting with three local um, sixth form colleges. Um, And in a sense, they're leading a rebellion as such against the London-centric ad industry and proving, to be honest, that there's talent outside of the city. What
0: makes this initiative so unique? Is it the fact that it is Stoke that they're going to, which is, you know, quite an unusual place? (laughs) Yeah,
1: there's more unusual places than Stoke.
0: (laughs) I I just want to clarify, it's just an unusual place for for advertising agencies to to look for talent.
1: And that's why it's so unique, you know. Um, One way of tackling the talent crunch is to get people to consider a career in advertising um, and often even with funding, you know, these London apprenticeship schemes are kind of impossible for anyone who doesn't have any support. Um, And in Shauna's piece, um, the ECD, um, Jim Thornton, he describes London as a barrier, and it came out of a conversation he had with Michael Lee, uh, the chief strategy uh, director, as they tried to figure out why the talent pool was um, repeatedly shrinking. By creating this opportunity in Stoke, you know, it's highlighting that there's talent outside of London and it's readily available So if if a big agency like VCCP can take interest in Stoke and not sit around and wait for talent to come to them, then, you know, they sort of set a precedent for similar academies to to look at places off the (laughs) beaten, unusual places off the beaten, unbeaten track.
0: Sure. And if new recruits can deliver on a cold, rainy night in Stoke, surely that's a real positive for the industry.
1: I mean, the pandemic's taken up a lot of things. Um, one thing that I've sort of, well, I guess we all saw coming was this mass exodus out of London as flexible and remote working, um, you know, increases. Um, and it's made us realise that, you know, there is more to it. And there's amazing creative hubs from the north of Scotland to Land's End. So if new Adlaners can do it on a cold, rainy night in Stoke, they can do it on a cold, rainy night in Liverpool, Glasgow, Bournemouth. I mean, I could go on, but we've got a very limited podcast time, so you get my point.
0: Sure. And just to explain to our listeners what we're referring to by cold, rainy night, it's, it's quite a, a sort of well-trodden uh, football um, saying about foreigners who, you know, if they can d- play or perform on a cold, rainy night in Stoke, then they can pretty much do it anywhere because footballers do not play on cold and rainy nights outside of Stoke, apparently. Anyway, um, look... A lot of talk about diversity is often framed around things like gender and race, um, you know, but a lot less is talked about when it comes to class and background. Do you think the industry would benefit by expanding the talent net wider, um, such as where people are from? You know, you're from Wrexham, for example. Should Adlan go to Wrexham to find talent?
1: I mean, a lot of people are going to Wrexham at the minute. Now it's the first time in my life that I've seen North Wales actually be in the spotlight, thanks to Amber Celebrity and Ryan Reynolds. But I spent majority of my lockdown in Wales, and I encountered my own ignorance because, you know, I have lived in London for years, and I assume that that's where all things go on. And I was amazed to see a whole host of, you know, creative industries and, and businesses and whatnot along the coast. So, you know, as you say, yeah, you're correct, diversity you know, often overlooks class and background, um, and you know the more the agencies look outside their London comfort zones, uh, the more they'll recognise that the UK has a lot more to offer, and their work will improve. That will resonate more with people. You know, it's hard to see the real person if you are up in your ivory tower.
0: It's a really good point, and I, I think diversity of thinking is something that's often overlooked. And if you think about consumers, they're all over the country, aren't they? So it, it certainly makes sense for there to be a much better mix of people from different places and it's really positive that vccp have have realized this and they're going there and hopefully others in the industry will follow suit and i guess one thing about COVID as well it's kind of illustrated that you can do a lot of things in this industry remotely there really isn't you know excuses anymore where people have to be based you know in london or, or, or wherever it is so yeah hopefully hopefully this is a sign of things to come Let's move along to our ad reviews. Let's kick off with Burberry Open Spaces. Imogen, can you give us a bit of a rundown on this one?
1: So it's a follow-up to uh, Singing in the Rain, which was their Christmas ad from last year that was a choreographed uh, ode to East London through the sort of gritty streets. as Ice smashed down on the ground as these dancers ate kebabs and danced through the streets. And it was by Megaforce. It's a collective of four uh, French directors through Riff Films. And this is the next film. And it basically responds to a quote from Thomas Burberry, which was inherent in every Burberry garment is freedom. And essentially, these four models go to the English countryside and as they're walking across a nice landscape, the wind or the spirit picks them up and they start sort of not floating or gliding as such, just really sort of moving beautifully through the air. And then they start to explore nature. Um, and you know, there's a beautiful scene where they're they're sort of twisting through the trees, uh, and and they end up going past the cliffs of Dover, and together they sort of join as one entity. For for Burberry, you know, they're trying to resonate with uh, a younger audience, uh, a sort of arty audience. I think that sort of they've over the years they've sort of had their brand taken over by certain echelons, but they're trying to reclaim it. It just felt like a very sort of arty, creative way of of trying to move the brand forward, um, and then sort of art space as such and to be honest I always have these dreams where I'm gliding and it was the first time I'd seen someone kind of visualize that so I guess that's probably why I liked it so much.
0: You know, it looked beautifully shot and, and it looked a, a whole lot of fun filming, didn't it? I'm, I'm sure that those actors had a, had a wonderful time. Uh, can I just ask you, in, in terms of Burberry and the sort of ads that they traditionally do, was this on brand or was this something a bit different?
1: I think it was a very much a sort of leap forward for Burberry that started with their Christmas campaign last year. Uh, but it felt like a very fresh, it's on brand, but it felt like a sort of, you know, progression from from where they were before. And it feels that it's, You know, the last one was so like lauded. And again, this one has been widely shared and everyone's reacting very positively to it. So you can sort of feel that they're trying to, um, you know, connect with this sort of younger, more arty, creative audience. Okay,
0: let's move along to our next ad, uh, which was one for Barclay Card. Imogen, can you give us a bit of a description of this ad?
1: Okay, so (laughs) uh, describing this ad, basically it's, uh, you know, Grace Jones, who does what's not to love and essentially you know barclay card moved into the buy now pay later market back in april um and it's basically an ad that in a sense you know takes a bit of a piss out of other you know fintech modern uh buy now pay later brands um the fact that you know they're all uber cool and they're trying to move into the space as a traditional bank and it's got grace jones uh going around there's this sort of like everyone in the in the In the ad, are trying very, very cool to be cool. There's a scene where basically, uh, and I think this is a nod to Klarna. There is a a, a sort of funky cowboy that's trying to buy something with a triangular credit card that says "cool credit" with K's on it, and she's like, "No." (laughs) And essentially, the whole message is, you know, I don't want my brand, my bank, to be cool. I want it to be protected. I want to have all these things that come with, you know, being part of a traditional bank.
2: Why does everything have to be cool these days? Cool hair. Cool pets. Even the way we pay needs to be cool. Oh. I don't just want my payment solution to be cool. I want protection on purchases, help building my credit score and rewards.
0: Yeah, I have to say that I really love this ad. It was a bit of a light dig at that whole, you know, cool new kids on the block, um, type of ad you see from, from these new players in the buy now, pay later sector. And I think it's also clever as well because there is new regulation, some would argue very overdue regulation, uh, coming to this sector. So they've sort of created something that, that's memorable, that sort of pokes fun at new rivals while reassuring its customers at the same time that it's cool to be traditional and safe uh, when it comes to to, to banking. So, yeah, I really enjoyed that one. Uh, let's move along to the Channel 4 one, um, which is another sort of parody ad, if you like. Uh, takes a bit of a dig at Shell. Can you give us a, a brief rundown on this one?
1: I mean, I love parody ads. Who doesn't? <laughs> I honestly think hu- humoring and advertising is one of the most effective ways that you can get your message across. And Joe Lycett, you might remember him from when he walked off. Uh, the TV in in anger over uh, being called out about his plastic use as a as a stunt essentially to make people think more about sustainability and the plastics they use. And I think he managed to actually lobby um I forget the yoga brands apologies but I'm um, lobby them to change their plastic essentially. This is a parody um and the run up to obviously COP twenty six where everyone is sort of considering more their sort of Carbon footprint as such, and um, he's taken a parody of your typical oil high carbon brands who love to put out advertising that try to paint a picture that they're a lot greener than they are. And in the spot, he is essentially acting as uh, the chief exec of, of Shell. Um, and as he speaks, it's you have to make sure you're not eating any food or that you have a strong stomach when you watch the ad as a pre-warning. Um, I didn't have that pre-warning. But uh, essentially, as he speaks, um, bits of poo start to come out of his mouth because he's talking shit. (laughs) Uh, uh, It's just progressively more and more shit comes out.
0: We have set out clear
3: plans on how we are going to reduce our absolute emissions by
2: 2030.
3: (laughs) I'm sorry. I have shut out of my mouth. Where was I? Oh yes, because we care about our planet, Shell won't invest in any new oil fields and will cancel our membership of any groups that lobby against climate change policy. (coughs) This isn't
0: greenwashing. this is the truth... I I found the ad hilarious and and quite uncomfortable to watch. Mm -hmm. But I think that's very much its intention. And it's really interesting and brave that Channel 4 is taking such a strong position on greenwashing and calling out Shell specifically. You know, it's an important issue and one that is receiving much more scrutiny by watchdogs and regulators. My only question mark about this, Imogen, is, you know, well, do you reckon the gross imagery of, you know, the fake Shell CEO um, shitting out of his mouth could cloud (laughs) the important messaging a little bit?
1: Um, No, because I think often, you know, activist groups or who are the people who most go after, you know, the high carbon um, clients, they often go go after them with a kind of very serious, critical tone. Um, And I think often, you know, things like people don't really respond that well to Extinction Rebellion, because I think often they feel like the one that they're pointing the finger at them. And, you know, because this had an element of parody and a bit of surreal and a bit of ridiculousness, I think it actually makes the message resonate more because of that. It gets you really thinking about it and it gets you, you like I've thought about this ad a lot since uh, since watching it the first time. And I think that, yeah, there is an element of humorous point the finger, or whatever, but um, I think it really hits the right tone.
0: Look, it's definitely one of those ads, you know, once you see it, you can't really unsee it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hopefully it will, will resonate with viewers, but I'm pretty sure whatever they think about the ad, um, they certainly won't forget it in a hurry. No. Right, let's move along to our final ad now, and it's a new one by the government. Uh, can you take us give us a bit of a rundown on this one?
1: So every year, the government brings out its uh, its flu push last year it was the biggest flu campaign they'd ever done this year is the first time that it's been covid and flu going into this winter months and obviously the talk of the town is the fact that cases are more high than any of us would have imagined they're high the highest since march uh, and so going into winter what happened last time uh, as everyone will all remember because how could we forget you know these winter months it does make things rise and it's just an awareness camp and to that it's just interesting if the you know the talk is you know we're going to have to learn to live with covid as we do with the flu um, and a much more extreme sample because obviously with covid you have asymptomatic it's very different in that sense but it kind of said to me about this is the new normal this is how it will be we will now have covid and flu campaigns moving forward it's good that so many of us are double vaccinated. But viruses like colds, flu and COVID-19 can spread quickly in winter. So many adults and most children will be offered a free flu vaccine. And if you're over 50 or in an at-risk group,
2: you'll also need a COVID-19 booster.
0: I thought the ad, you know, it was pretty. It was pretty safe. The imagery was easy to understand with that sort of yellow and blue outlines. Meaning you are extra protected. Uh, look, hopefully it's really effective. I think it's a really important ad, and we have to support these these government messaging and and initiatives.
1: And I, I remember interviewing Lowe last year about their COVID comms, and they kind of highlighted how difficult it is um, to, you know. One side, they don't want to be too dramatic because they don't want to scare people with this sort of doom mongering. But then they also don't want to be too removed and say, everything's fine, go out and enjoy yourselves. And it's such a difficult line of, you know, they're trying to find ways of of making their comms obviously, A lot of their communications is just quite straight and it is how it is and it gives you the facts and whatever. And it was just interesting hearing from them, you know, how they've learned to respond to this situation that none of them ever thought they would ever have to respond to.
0: It's a really interesting point that you raise there, Imogen, because when you look at different types of government advertising, you know, sometimes you get ads that are more sort of shocking and and things like, you know, uh, drink driving ads and, and those sorts of things, really trying to shock people into the right behaviours. Whereas with COVID, they're, they're sort of being, they're, they're towing a very sort of sensible line, aren't they? Yeah. Do you have, do you have any sort of insights? Did Malino explain the reason why they're going down this path?
1: Because to be honest, it was trial and error. So like they did certain ones that were a bit more removed and they did one that was all the breathing and it was actually people with COVID and then that caused lots of complaints. And, you know, it's one of those things where they're just constantly towing the line because you've got people coming from both ends. Um, who are, so it's just been kind of, you know, it's interesting. They set up their own little like uh, unit in government as soon as like things started getting really serious and they worked from there, which meant they worked very closely with the government throughout the whole year. Um, just to sort of, it was kind of like described as a war room uh, where they had their collective. It wasn't just Mullen Lowe, it was 23 Red, Freud's, all together as one. And it was basically just trying to keep their ear to the ground to understand you know what people are going through what they're wanting and also you know having the right advice and the right you know a lot of their ads were criticized you know the the tagline that everyone just took the best out of um but it must be very hard for them because you know they're in a between the rock and a hard place trying to you know protect the country do what's right and obviously everyone's going to have their own opinion on whether that's the right approach
0: absolutely absolutely very very difficult ads ads to sort of i can imagine to script and get that messaging right And up next is a panel discussion at Campaign's in-housing summit. A panel of senior marketers discuss the thorny issue of whether creative skills are compromised when taking marketing in-house. The panel also discussed whether the in-house operations of brands can conjure up the same magic of a traditional agency client setup. It was quite a feisty session and today we have an edited version of the discussion. It was chaired by Campaign Deputy Editor Gemma Charles. Here are the highlights.
2: So to discuss this, we've got Scott Somerville, Head of Brand and Marketing at Eon UK. Hello, Scott. Morning. Hi, hi. And we have Jane Sayers, the Global discipline Lead Film and Content Engine at Shell. Hi, Jane. Hi, John. And then we've got Simon Martin, who's the founder and chief executive of Oliver. Good morning. And then we've got Giles Morrison. Now, take a deep breath for this it's, he's global vice president brand communications and global brand vice president Unilever brand at Unilever. Did I get that right, Giles?
4: Absolutely, so, perfect. Excellent,
2: excellent. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start with Jane. I think. Um, so you know, let's look at the title of this session, which is you know, our our creative skills Compromise when brands take marketing in-house. Jane, I mean what do you what do you say to this as someone who's you know very much in in there doing this at shell um is having people who do you miss having people who can bring experience from working on accounts from different businesses like you can at an agency or are you able to still create some kind of magic in in in-house what would you say to that
5: I think we still create magic in-house actually Gemma um the content engine team is three years old at the moment. It's, it, it runs with a core team of individuals who remain, um, and we supplement with freelance talent when we need to. And invariably, that's for our larger, larger projects, big global recruitment campaigns, things of that nature. So we're picking from the same talent pool as outside agencies when it comes to getting those freelancers in. So there's not there's, there's no difference there. And of course, you just have to be incredibly careful when you're recruiting a core team that you're getting the perfect combination of talent with that team. And I think we've done that really well. But, but for me, there's, there's three things that, that I think are more advantageous about being in-house than out-of-house. Um, firstly, you build up absolutely expert knowledge of that brand. Not, not just the visual identity or the audible identity, but, you know, the brand, its yeah. personality, how it wants to communicate with people. So the team are incredibly knowledgeable about that, um, which is a massive help. They're not having to learn the brand every time on a new, on a new job. Um, the Shell email address, it sounds so simple, but, but just the trust that colleagues around Shell have in knowing that they're dealing with somebody in-house is a definite advantage. And then there's one thing that we hadn't anticipated, actually, but we're definitely finding, and that is that because we're in house, we have a greater ability to push back at clients in order to up the creativity than we see outside agencies being able to do. And I think that's because you know we're not having to protect the account; we are the incumbent. We're going to remain the incumbent, um, and that and that ability to to just take things to the next level, is setting our content apart.
2: That's a great starter, Jane. Thanks for that. Um, Scott, I'm going to come to you. Um, Now, I know that you've... If you could explain a bit about how much of your work you've in-house. I know that you... I think you... um, pointed engine um um maybe at the beginning of this year so you're obviously still you know working with major agencies and what what's what's your situation and what have you found yeah well well at eon
3: we've we've got a real mix so the relationship with engine goes back i think probably four or five years now um and went through a a, a sort of procurement driven refresh uh, at the start of this year in that respect but we also have a mixture in different areas of the business and i think as Gideon set out in the introduction and as as Jane has said I think we all as marketeers focus in on in-housing versus agency as if it's some kind of binary choice as if one works or 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 one doesn't I think for us we've tried got a real mixture of great agency relationships but we've got in-house areas as well and that's you know direct employees where we do work which my background integrated marketer now of course but fundamentally you know cut my teeth in PR and all the rest of it where I think you know maybe slightly different to the more advertising and brand side of things where because of the nature of writing because of the nature of media relations it's always been more in-house as it were you'd have agency support but you were creating in that way as well whereas I think there used to be that bit more of a divide between perhaps a brand manager and then more of the creative side from the agency and that blending of things I think is we're seeing across owned earned and paid now so so Eon we have that mix we have top level support from the likes of likes of engine we also um, as I say have, have um we're on the production side agency staff embedded with us and that's the blend that works for us i think it's finding what works for you what brings out the best of your team i think you know again excited and, and very envious as of, as jane sets out of of she thinks they've got creatively stronger from having the work in house, we find it's that external challenge that really helps us. You know, as an organisation, we can sometimes be a little bit, for good reason, but risk averse or conservative with a small C. So actually having that external voice helps us to focus, helps to push us. But it's really, you know, it is horses for courses. So we've got a mixture and that's what we find works for us. And I think that the bit as well, where we do still rely on that external support, but I'm sure Simon will go on to talk about this. That mixture of in-house and uh, agency support, being able to scale the resource, that's the other bit that's probably the big barrier that stopped us from going full in-house at the moment, as well as getting that external perspective. So a bit of around the houses, Gemma, but hopefully, as I say, we've got a blend. And you can hear we're wrestling with this topic, right? And it's how do you find the right people? How do you find that right mix? So, um, yeah, hopefully that's a, a helpful start.
2: Hmm. Hmm. No, it is absolutely, and we are going to come to to Simon now. Actually, um, you mentioned him, Scott. So, I mean, Simon. Obviously, the the title of this session is sort of provocative uh, to to try and get some uh, good discussion yeah. going. So, I'm sure you would obviously take issue with um, the the idea that creative skills are compromised when in housing occurs. Um, but what do you believe is the, the effect on creativity when brand makes that move away from the sort of traditional agency client model.
6: Well, I think creativity is an outcome of a of a tension you know that tension is you know trying to find the best answer the best work, accumulating all of the inputs that you need insights, data, whatever it might be, understanding of the brand. Uh, and I think um, both Jane and Scott have said it I said it perfectly. you know it's about talent bringing talent, allowing them to Um, express themselves providing them with the the environment to you know to achieve that tension I thought that was a really interesting point that Jane made actually in some ways um, you know they don't have the 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 people creating the work in in Shell's world are not encumbered by you know the the fact that they've got to please a client you know they can actually say no this is not good enough and I think that's a really interesting dynamic but I also think there's an advantage to you know, there's no one group of people, whether it be an agency or a group of, um, you know, creatives, have got a monopoly on all the best ideas. You know, we need to um, provide the, the fertile ground for for ideas to flourish and grow with the right inputs. And I don't, I, I think it's a very old notion that only agencies can come up with the best creative ideas. Um, I think it's about, you know, the environment and the tools that they have and the, and, and basically, the culture of way creative comes into being. So, I think there are many ways to do it. I wouldn't say in-house is necessarily better or worse. I wouldn't say external is necessarily better or worse. It's the environment in which you create to allow that creativity to happen.
2: And Charles, um, let's let's come to you. Um, obviously, you've got a sort of wealth of experience, having um, kind of overseen you you studio for since twenty sixteen. Where would you? You've got someone like Scott who's kind of starting on this journey. Um, given that wealth experience, what kind of tips would you give to marketers at the start of that journey who are thinking about this?
4: Uh, yeah. Uh, so you know, the, the first thing I'd say is is that the um, the in housing trend is uh, probably only just getting going. So you know, I think the the, the reasons why we did what we did in back in 2016 with you studio when we first started the pilots uh, and the principles that we applied then I would say they still apply now so they're still very relevant today and I'd probably say I'd say you know there's probably three three things to think about on this you know for um, brands who are looking to start the journey I'd um, really think about fluidity so you know our you studio setup is is Really, in essence, it's a very different way of working. That's the core of it. It's a very different way of working than how we were working before. So there are no barriers, really, either physical or emotional barriers between uh, the marketers and the, you know, the agency folk. Um, and, and that's really well suited for the kind of, of, uh, you know, complex, uh, the kind of processes, the creative work, the kind of assets that you're making to sort of feed the really fast-moving digital ecosystem that you've got today. So I think that's a really important thing to think about. I would say the second one is partnership. So our youth studios are are actually a hybrid model. So we have some people and resources who are Unilever. We have some people and resources who are from Oliver. Um, And I think that gives both parties, uh, you know, skin in the game. Um, So, you know, I, I would argue you get the best of both worlds. You get the sort of internal gravitas, a bit of what Jane was referring to, I think. And you also get an external perspective. So I, I'm, I'm quite a fan of the partnership model on this. And then the last point I'd make is around flexibility, really. So, you know, a, a key benefit of, of this sort of in-housing yet outsourcing approach, which is what we, we've done with Oliver, actually, is that you can build this internal expertise at the same time as being able to be very flexible, you know, um, regarding the skills and experiences that we have on the Oliver side. So if we need to change things, and, and of course, as we all know, the, the, in the world we live in, we need to change things often, quite, you know, quite often. So when we need to change things, it's actually a bit easier to do that through the kind of relationship that we have with Oliver. So I think that, again, as well, is quite well suited to this fast-paced digital world we're living in.
2: And, I mean, just bring it to life a bit. Give me an example of a, a great campaign that has come out of this um, arrangement.
4: Um, well, it's, it's a it's a difficult one to answer, um, first of all, because we, uh, you know, and, and I'm just going to a big plug to my team and to the Oliver guys. We, we in 2020, we got 48 nominations and 21 external awards. And I think we were also the, the, the most awarded UK in-house agency of the, you know, of the year. Uh, and of course, we also were global agency of the year uh, for in-housing. So, you know, we've got lots to choose from. But if I go back to the, to the last five years, one of my personal favorites was the, the work we did around the, the, the Brexit campaign that we did for Marmite. So uh, if you if anyone remembers that, we did some brilliant work and that came from U Studio. Uh and, and of course, what it did was take the, the very divisive uh, discussions that were going on around Bre- around Brexit and then bring it down to what Marmite knows about, which is actually about breakfast. Uh, and uh, and you know personally, I love it. Of course, you you might hate it, but then that's marmite for you, I guess.
2: Indeed, indeed. Um, so we've had a few questions already. So um, I'm going to go to them and try and get through them as much as possible. Um, right, I'll go to the first one, which was um, Jane. This is to you, actually. It's it's somebody's asked um, what kind of work is shell. Doing in-house and perhaps when you answer that, Jane, maybe you could give an example of um, one of your the favourite campaigns that perhaps that you've created.
5: Sure. So we we have very much a hybrid model. The content engine team does about forty percent of the film work that's coming out of Shell, and that's just film work. But we sit within a larger creative department at Shell that at the moment predominantly uses external agencies for design photography and other creative disciplines the content engine team would ordinarily take care of the kind of prestigious film assets so um, it was shell strategy day in february this year and the content engine team made all the content for that that um, went out across social media Um, they were in control of a very large global recruitment campaign a couple of years ago we were just about to go into phase two of that when lockdown happened and everything changed Um, So that will come around again next year now, I think Um, that was called the future yours to make um, vast numbers of assets, you know, a big global campaign. And that was an example where we brought in some freelance talent to supplement the core team in order to in order to grow it. We do internal content occasionally with the content engine team, but predominantly their work is external facing and, and broadcast across social media platforms globally.
2: OK, thanks for that, Jane. Um, right, we've got another question here. Have the panellists proved that the creative output in-house is equal in effectiveness? I mean, the, it doesn't say equal to what, but I presume that's or um, an external uh, agency, I suppose. Uh, who would like to take that? Um, Scott, have you done any work in that area? I'm sure we're we're fairly
3: typical. I think of any campaign with, with any pot of investment behind it, we're looking at, you know, standard things across effectiveness and messaging and how consumers have responded. And I think regardless of where it's been produced and what channel, you know, that's what, you know, ultimately it's, supposed to a likability, right? You know, so those same measurements for our in-house work is used to justify the same external investment we'd make with, what, with, with the likes of Engine or, or one of our other partners. And I think that's the key to all of this as well, is making sure that, you know, just because something's in-house, it, you know, it doesn't mean that it's not got a cost attached, does it? It doesn't mean that it's not part of your budget. And again, that's, you know, for those of us working in, in large organisations, there's always that part of ultimately being a central service as well. So, you know, there's the creative side, of course, of in-housing, but it's again justifying, you know, as a pound internally spent, at least the same as a pound externally, and then looking at the service you provide there. So mixture of effectiveness, got to make sure we we track the financial side of it as well. And I think when I look across either work we've done or indeed um, work by other organisations, it's the same test, isn't it? You know, a, a good creative is, is a campaign that works well, and it doesn't matter where it's done. I think where I've seen in the past and experienced myself and made mistakes around in-housing in the past, and indeed with agencies, you know, when when pictures go wrong ultimately and all the rest of it, it's about making sure you are starting, you're putting creative at the heart, you know, of the work you're doing. I think where I've seen it go wrong is where you start to get led, I guess, you know by the investment case or the cost. So you're looking at doing something to save money. And I think that's been interesting for me over the last 18 months, especially during the pandemic, with so many organisations looking to trim back, looking to, to take a pause, is, you know, should we in-house because it saves money? You know, and I, you know, truthfully, I hear that around our place as well, right? What's the balance? But again, the question points to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? You've got to make sure your campaigns resonate and you've got to make sure that works. So for me, I think, you know, it's it's always testing, always checking. One or the other isn't better a good campaign is a good campaign, but you've got to, as we keep saying, I think on, on all of us speaking, it's the right people, it's the right perspectives, and that's what leads to good work. And you should never compromise in that creativity because ultimately that cash you'll save, that, you know, slightly faster way of working, whatever. If the campaign's a dud at the end of the day. Those two things are going in the bin. So that's got to always be at the heart of this. So the creative possibilities of in-housing or agency work have always got to be right at the top of the order, I think.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Here's one directly to Simon. It says, um, Simon, what would you say is number one, Is the number one success factor in the in-house setup?
6: Uh, I would say, you know, uh, getting the culture right, creating a genuine um, partnership, uh, with the people that are engaging with with the in-house agency, I think that um, really understanding the that the, as, as uh, Jane was saying earlier, the culture of the business and ensuring that you know the teams that we're deploying have all of the right tools and the right environment in which to work, but also there is a sharing of, of culture. You want them to have a their own creative um, you know freedom and ability to. You know, really stretch the boundaries and do brilliant work. But similarly, you want them to be feeling really part of the culture and and really in one with partnership with the uh, with the internal clients that are that are you know consuming their service. Um, so for me, it is about culture. I think the most sustainable advantage of any business actually is the culture that you have. But I think building an in-house agency with the right culture and the right alignment of goals and ambitions with the um, with the, the client organisation effectively is, is absolutely crucial.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now we've had two questions about the briefing process. So um, I de- def- we definitely should touch on this topic. And actually it's something that we wrote about this week, um, uh, some research which found that there's a big disconnect between um, marketers and agencies in terms of how um, successfully a marketers think they're briefing versus agencies thinking that they're not marketers aren't very good at briefing them so um, there's this big sort of perception gap there so I I don't know if these questions might maybe they've seen this this research I don't know but the two questions which I guess we can sort of take together one of them is how are you briefing your in-house studios and then the other one is a a panel member organization still briefing in the same way Giles, does that sound like one you can comment
4: on? Yeah, of course. So we, uh, you know, the honest answer is that we brief in lots of different ways when it comes to U Studio. So when you think about it, well, it's a spectrum, really. So when you look at um, if you need to do something very, very quick, like super quick, you, you know, given that also we have these U Studios sat amongst our marketers, you can literally have a situation where someone comes up to someone's desk and briefs them over their shoulder. Yeah, about something they need that is super quick. Let's say you need to be just making a very little t- little tweak to a particular asset. You know that that's the kind of fluidity that I was talking about before. So you can move things on quickly. That's still a briefing of one kind. And then of course you have stuff that is maybe a little bit more. You know that is um, that requires more resources and more and more planning, but is um, you know still one of those ones where you, you just want to just do this thing. And they can be quite straightforward briefs as well. And then of course you have you go all the way up the spectrum you get to the much more strategic briefs which are much more akin of course to the the kind of briefing you would be doing with one of your you know maybe one of your external agency partners on a on a more strategic um you know project and you know so do i think that uh, clients and agencies both think that they are good at writing briefs they probably both do uh, having worked both agency and client side look i, I think in the end it you can write as many different brief templates as you want. And uh, I've written many in my, in my career, given what I do. You know, the templates are only as good as what people you know, put in them. So really, you know, the only bit of advice I could give is take some time. When you're doing something more strategic, take some time about thinking about what you put into that brief. Actually, you know, it's, it's like that old saying, which is, you know, I'd have written you a, I'd, I'd have written you a shorter letter if I'd had the time. And, you know, that that is what a, a brief is like, you know, and I think actually some of the best client briefs are often one-liners, actually, the best strategic ones. So we get a whole mixture in in-house agencies. Um, and I think, I guess, what I come back to on, on answering your question is, is that's the point. We don't want it to be quite so formal a process all of the time, because a lot of the stuff that you're doing is so quick turnaround that you've got to, you've got to move, move, move. I hope that helps.
2: Yeah, no, that is helpful, I'm sure. Um, okay, well, another question here. I, I'm going to ask this one because it does um, bring in the sort of creativity uh, question, which um, is obviously part of this panel. Um, so, someone said, from your experience, um, how do you continue to firewall the creative side to an in house agency? Some of the allure of agencies is the magic that happens behind the curtain, utilizing account managers to keep brand managers at a distance. This is inherently hard. In house, do you have any advice? Simon, shall I come to you on that? What's your view there?
6: Sure, I think building on Giles's point, you know, the fluidity, the ability for people to work in partnership and collaborate is really important. Now, we have processes that, you know, we've defined over 17 years that really uh, enable the flow of work to happen. But what we are not prescriptive about is, you know, how certain things absolutely have to happen. Because if you do that, you just inhibit people from. Um, from working together. So I think that creatively, the best work happens when when people do collaborate. And there is no reason why, you know, of course, an in-house agency team cannot go into its rooms and and do things and come out with some magic. And, you know, not everything, every moment of the day isn't about a collaborative process to arrive at an answer. There is, it's a a myth to think that, you know, an in-house agency is subservient to, it, it, it's brand masters at the creative level you know they are literally working in partnership together and I think that you know there's still wonderful opportunities for creative teams to to go and do their thing and to, to you know get get right into the um uh, the creative process and and come up with amazing work and we want them to challenge the client we want them to come up with things that are are scary for the client you know, and then come up. But it it doesn't mean that we have to inhibit the creative process just because they're uh, an in-house agency. And the way our model works also is we have multiple layers. So we have people that are not just on-site or in-house. We have teams that are uh, in our own offices throughout the world coming in and out of the client's world as and when necessary. So we actually have the opportunity for creatives to really flourish and grow in whatever environment is right for them. But I absolutely uh, disagree with the the myth that, that, you know, there is any reduction in tension or opportunity, or uh, or, or creative autonomous to at least come up with ideas. You know what actually might be published in the outside world. You know always is a function of um, you know agreement with the client, but fundamentally to to arrive at that point of a wonderful idea, you can still do it just as well in house as you can do in any other uh, environment you're operating in.
4: Yeah, I'd quite like to add to that. I honestly I think that's a really old school view uh, of whoever uh, of the, yeah. the way that question was put. You know, look at other creative industries. They they don't operate um, with, uh, you know, a pair of people sitting off in a dark room somewhere. Look at film industry, TV industry, everything that goes on in the internet. A lot of it is done through collaboration. And to be honest, you know, just through, um, you know, and I, I think as was said earlier, when idea can come from anywhere. So we, uh, having said that, if that's what people want to do in our in-house agency, then they can go and do it. Um, so it, please don't think that what people do in new is just go to loads of workshops. That's not at all the case. Um, it's not collaborative in that. In, it's not, it's not sort of uber collaborative in that sense. We still have, um, you know, the creative teams who, who go off and, and do their own thing whenever they want to. But I, I think that you just, people just need to get used to this idea of it being much more fluid than maybe it used to be in the past. And quite honestly, actually, that's the way that all of the, the big external agencies work too in many ways so you know i i in my role look after the relationship with all of our big external agency partners too and um, they would also sit here and say that that was an old school point of view
2: great we've ended on uh, something a bit provocative there so that's great uh, that was a really good panel so it just leaves me to thank scott jane simon and giles
0: I'm afraid that is all we have time for. Thanks so much for joining us today, Imogen. Really enjoyed our chat. Also, a big thank you to Gemma, Scott, Jane, Giles and Simon from our In Housing Summit panel. Also, a big thanks to our producer, Lindsay Riley from Rethink Audio. Uh, Please do visit our website, campaignlive.co.uk and subscribe to our newsletters so you can stay up to date with everything that is going on in Adland. Thank you for joining us on behalf of the campaign team. Until next time, goodbye.